Welcome to The Bear and the Ball. I am your host, Nick Webster, and today on the show, I'm delighted to invite someone who's had stops at Miami FC in the USL1, the Florida Marlins, the Fort Lauderdale Strikers in the NASL, and he's also turned his hand to art, creating custom logo designs for clubs and leagues across North America, Atlantic City FC, Boca Raton FC, and New Orleans United, all proudly wear the shirt, designed by this man, Derek Reese. Derek, welcome to the Bear and the Ball. I know you're very busy with World Soccer Tour, and that's how we got together, but so glad you could spend 30 minutes or so talking about the beautiful game. Thank you so much for having me and for the uh, wonderful little intro there. Um, you got some stuff that I even forgot about. <laughs> um, uh, great, great to be on the show. So uh, the, reason, the reason for calling you, I'm good friends with Chris, who is obviously the uh, chief editor at World Soccer Talk. And I was on the site the other day. Please go there if you have any desires to read about the beautiful game and, of course, see the times and dates of where soccer is played throughout the world. Well, Derek wrote a very interesting uh, article, and the title was Why U.S. Soccer Lags Behind Other Nations. What was the motivation for this article, Derek? No, no. um, well, to be honest, um, it was, uh, oh, excuse me, I've got a got an 18-month-old apparently getting into trouble in the other room. Um, <laughs> um, uh, it was actually Chris's idea, um, and it's kind of, I guess, uh, if, I mean, the way, you know, anybody that follows the game in this country over the last, I mean, you know, honestly, it's, it's kind of like a repeating cycle, but like the last century since the game started, it's always like, you know, why, why, aren't, why isn't the U.S. better? Why, you know, we had the, the World Cup, right? And, and uh, the U.S. qualified after missing it the previous time. And, you know, oh, you know, uh, are we up there with the, you know, top nations? Are we, is being the best team, you know, half the time in CONCACAF, is that good enough uh, kind of thing? And it just, just, you know, and me as a, I mean, you know, I'm, I've uh, dabbled in writing now a little bit, but my background as a as a sports fan and uh, designer comes from growing up in South Florida as super big into American sports. You know, when I was a kid, uh, they had just gotten, you know, the Heat showed up, the, the Florida Marlins, the, the Panthers, the hockey, the Dolphins were the biggest thing in town. But, you know, I was conditioned, like, those are the big sports. And at the time, in the 90s, we didn't have there was minor league version of the of the Fort Lauderdale Strikers was around the Fusion came in 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 the late nineties and was was a, a blip right uh, they they came and went very quickly before anybody really had a chance to to really get on board with it and so soccer wasn't big on my radar until later on when I started to fall in love with the sport and then you know initially hey why don't we have a team in Major League Soccer you know let's 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 do, make that happen and then getting involved working in the sport, falling in love with the lower division team that we had, which was the original Miami FC, and then eventually became the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. And then following the world game and be like, hey, the soccer doesn't work the way sports work in the United States. You know, it's different. And, and it's so connected to the communities. It's so connected, you know, from the lowest, you know, team that there is to the biggest teams in the world. They're all part of this, you know, ecosystem. And it's just we're connected to it in the U.S., but we're not. And and in a way, and just, you know, I'm I kind of think of myself. I'm a like broad idea, conceptual kind of guy. And, you know, in the article, it's more like looking at, you know, overall how we run the sport in the country and and how it's different from the rest of the world in many respects. And 
you know, that's a big reason why, you know, the U.S. men um, and our clubs aren't as good as, frankly, they should be. I mean, with, with our resources, with our population, um, with our athletes, it's just, you know, just doesn't seem mathematically possible that we, we, sh- we should be as mediocre as we've been on the men's side. The women's side, obviously, they've won four, four World Cups and have been fantastic. But I think that's uh, a little bit as a result of, you know, the the infrastructure and availability to the sport and, you know, modest investment that there was here for many decades that was just so far ahead of anywhere else in, in the world where it was just, you know, a layup for the for the women to be so good because they, you know, we had the college programs and youth soccer and where the you know women were having access to the sport that just didn't exist in many other places. Now, you know, we're still one of, obviously, the, you know, reigning champions, uh, one of the dominant teams, but it's not as easy as it used to be um, because you see, you know, leagues in, in Europe and South America and all over the world improving investment in, in their women's side. Um, so, yeah, that's, I mean, that's really, it's just, you know, kind of taking a, a look at where we stand you know, where we're going, we've got the World Cup on the men's side coming back to, to North America in less than four years now. And, you know, it's it's going to be another one of those, you know, watershed moments. It's going to come around. The hype's going to be there. Oh, you know, has have we finally made it? Has soccer finally, you know, a big deal in this country? And all those types of questions that, that come around when the hype builds up for, for that event every four years. And, you know, obviously soccer's made it in this country. It's huge. You know, millions and millions of people play it every day. Uh, the youth soccer is is gigantic. There's more and more professional clubs every year, domestically, and the international game. You know, Premier League, um, La Liga, that kind of thing. You know, the actual international competitions. It's it's huge. It's it's the, some of the most watched sports events on on TV and streaming and and that sort of thing here. But it's about our own product, our own clubs and national team improving themselves. And they're still kind of, are we any better than? you know, where, where we were four years ago, where we were 20 years ago, where we were a hundred years ago. You know, I think in the, in the article, I mentioned that, you know, the best U S performance on the men's world cup was the very first one where hardly any European teams played and they didn't have to qualify for it. They were invited. They just showed up and they finished in third place, you know, with, I, I don't remember the number, but it was far fewer teams. It was not as difficult as it is, uh, today. So, you know, it's uh, it's just interesting to take a uh, take a step back and and observe and and look and say, well, you know, where are we at? Why are we here? And uh, you know, what you know that leaves the question open to, you know, everybody is like, how do we take the next step? How do we improve that? Are there things we could be doing differently to uh, advance the game and make it a bigger part, you know, of the domestic sporting culture? There's, you know, obviously. The game is healthier in many respects than it was, you know, when when Major League Soccer first started in the mid 90s. Um, you know, there's tons of soccer venues that has specifically been built for the sport. There's places where crowds are fantastic. There's uh, much more stable lower division teams who are building their own venues and and things of that sort. Academies, all of that stuff is fantastic. But then there's places where, you know. There's 5,000 people showing up for a first division game. There's, you know, uh, struggles in in international uh, competitions where we just had, you know, last year Seattle was the first team in what, it was 20, 21 years or something like that to win CONCACAF. It's been dominated by the Mexican club. So, you know, it's it's just looking at where we're at and, and how we can 
evolve. You know, the sport needs to evolve. We're in our own little still corner of how we operate the game for the most part in the world with, uh, in terms of things like, uh, you know, paying solidarity payments for youth clubs and other clubs where players come from, promotion and relegation, which is always, you know, a crazy debate. Uh, <laughs> anybody you bring it up with, um, and that sort of thing. So, you know, that that's just pretty much where it's at. And it's always fun to kind of poke at things and present hypotheticals and, you know, uh, just just examine, examine, you know, the sport as a whole. Yeah, well, you mentioned the fact that, you know, have, have we changed? And, and many would argue that uh, maybe the, the team in the early 90s or 94, 96, that era, uh, is better than the, the, the teams we see today. And, and that's without the benefit of Major League Soccer. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned in your uh, article the prim- primary focus of U.S. soccer seems to be the national team. Why is that? Why is that a hindrance to the development of soccer in this country? Because the national team is the is the cherry on top of the cake, and it's the it's the team that everybody knows, and it's right. the team that creates the I would say the uh, the the names and superstars that are going to be the personalities responsible for growing the sport. Absolutely. And I think there's a, there's some truth to that. And it's, it's certainly a factor, right? Everybody, you know, especially when it's, when it's world cup time or when the team does well, these are the guys that they're on the morning shows on regular TV. These, you know, the people that don't normally follow the sport get to know these players and they're the, you know, that's the, the end game goal, right? It's kind of barometer you know, as a country, has your country won the world cup? How well has your country done in that competition? Because that is the biggest soccer event in the world and it draws the most eyeballs and it's the biggest deal. But in my opinion, the the teams like Brazil, France, England, Germany, the powerhouses of international soccer didn't necessarily just build national teams from out of nowhere and became good. They're that good because they built the culture of the sport in their countries. And that starts with the clubs, the you know amateur and professional clubs, developing those players, creating the passion for the game, you know, building everything around that. And then it builds to that you know, national team that's capable of winning four World Cups, you know, capable of of beating anybody else in the world, you know, on the biggest stage. And so, you know, I think because the the way that the sport has developed in the U.S. with all these stops and starts in our professional leagues, you know, uh, many, many years not qualifying for the World Cup uh, up until uh, 1990 when they, you know, and then 94, obviously they were, you know, hosts, so we got in no matter what. But, you know, part of the reason they didn't qualify was because the, the infrastructure wasn't there. The clubs weren't around. There was small pockets of regional leagues, ethnic leagues, you know, semi-pro stuff. The the NASL was, you know, a flash in the pan, very popular in some places, not popular in others, but highly dependent on, you know, foreign talent coming in. And so, you know, we didn't make the World Cup for many, many years, and... It was because the focus was kind of, and then, you know, in the 90s, it became, well, we don't have a first division league. We, you know, our national team needs to be better. So we try to, we're trying to shortcut the, the, the foundation work, skip ahead to the top. You know, we want to be up there with, with England, with Brazil, with uh, the Netherlands, you know, these top national programs where, you know, you have to do the groundwork first before you can just 
all of a sudden be among the the elite of the game. So I think you know maybe you look at two thousand two where they had the the surprise run to I believe it was the quarterfinals um, in in Korea Japan, and it's like okay. You know, look, we're we're getting there. We're we're making it, but sometimes just a flukish thing like that happens, and it makes you feel a little more important than you are. Stuff like you know, we have the U.S. Is, or Mexico wins the gold cup every time. Well, those tournaments held in the United States ninety nine percent of the time, right? There's they don't have many games uh, in those type of tournaments that are uh, in difficult away locations, right? You know, Panama doesn't get to host the gold cup, or you know, Jamaica, the, that kind of thing. So. Um, and it's, you know, it is difficult as um, 2018 showed, you know, to qualify for the World Cup. But, you know, it's still one of the easier confederations in the world to, you know, and now it's the way they've changed the qualification. It's, it's almost a, a slam dunk for the U.S. to qualify every time. So it's, you know, I think the way that we focus on that as the barometer of success is with the national team and, and kind of holding up, look at how great. Our domestic league is now, you know, first division domestic league, um, which gets a lot of and for many years got almost exclusive, you know, support from the from the federation in terms of the way the media rights deal was structured, um, where we leave out, you know, the majority of professional clubs, the majority of amateur clubs in general in this country are not in major league soccer. There's uh, 29 teams in 27 cities for an entire continent you know, is, is, doesn't cover the bases. So you've got teams in USL, teams in NISA, all of these various amateur leagues, they're kind of just left to out on their own to kind of fight amongst each other for the, for the scraps of what's left in terms of fans and sponsors and, and all this stuff, because everything's so disconnected and it just, it doesn't uh, lend itself well to the overall, you know, cultivating of the culture and the development and the players it's not you know it's it's obviously the players but it's also so much about that community aspect and you know driving everyone in the country to feel like they're part of the same team and right now it's just the way that it works is just it isn't you know there are places it's such a big country which is you know obviously it's a unique problem for the US because even you know geographically large countries like like Brazil or Russia or China a lot of their club infrastructure is consolidated in like a small region for the most part whereas we're so spread out it's it's like as if europe had one one league it's just nuts it's to, to try and manage that so to that extent it's always difficult i've always been kind of more recently a proponent of like if you imagine an alternate history where places like california like florida like texas developed their own independent you know federation and pyramid kind of like uh you know the united kingdom is allowed to be in soccer four different countries, one of those, you know, regions could have possibly already won the World Cup or be a, have a better managed system just because it would be geographically easier. There'd be, it'd be closer for, you know, teams to be able to travel around. It'd be, you know, they'd have a tighter control on their player pool and development and how they want to run the sport. There'd be things like, I'm, you know, as someone who's lived my entire life in Florida, it's absolutely insane that we play our professional seasons over the summer when it's 90 degrees out with 95% humidity and there's thunderstorms all the time. It makes no sense. I've sat through so many weather delays over the last 15 years at soccer games and sweated just terribly, even at, you know, for a 7.30 kickoff. It's just bonkers that we don't play during the wintertime in a, in a place like Florida, but we can't do that because we, our teams play in leagues that have, you know, Montreal and New England and Seattle in them, where obviously that would be nuts for them to play 
at that time of year. So it's just one of those, it's, it's, it's kind of our situation geographically, you know, plays a little bit into it, but I think there's, there's a way to, yeah, I think you can work with everybody and, and, you know, massage the system a little bit and, and do it better. There's just, you know, there has to be a way to do it better because obviously the way that they have been running the sport for a hundred years isn't good enough because you just don't have the results to show for it. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the disconnected system and the false pyramid and the alphabet suit of leagues. Now, folks, Cal South provides so many different opportunities for players, coaches, and referees. And we've got some fantastic offerings coming up this summer in the Pro Plus ODP program. We've got a Moore Park Day Camp, June 19 to 23. In Ojai, it's a residential camp. Fantastic stuff. Goalkeeping and finishing from June 29 to July 2nd. We have an all-girls camp, June 24th to 27th. And the final camp of the year will be the Positional Residential, July 3rd to the 6th. All that information is on the website at calsouth.com. These camps are fantastic for young players to develop the skills needed to take them to the next level. And I know that for a fact because I've actually worked on these camps and my son has attended these camps and could not stop raving about it. They are all at the Thatcher School in beautiful Ojai. It is an amazing facility. Food, football, soccer, you can't beat it. We also have coaching licenses. For those of you who want to get to the next level in your coaching career, we have D and C licenses. The C license, a fantastic course, very in-depth. We also have 9v9 and 11 versus 11. And we don't forget about the referees. Juan Guzman, our state referee assigner is the best in the business and southern california consistently produces the best referees in the country once again go to calsouth.com for all the information on referees and finally soccer de mayo what could be better cinco de mayo soccer in our own beautiful kern county at bakersfield may 6th through 7th Soccer de Mayo, we'll have music, we'll have games, we'll have soccer, we'll even have food trucks, there is a taco competition, you are going to absolutely love it. All this information and more on the CalSouth.com website. Welcome back to Derek Reese. He is a very passionate young man, as you can hear by the interview prior to the commercial. Now we're going to talk about the disconnected system and the false pyramid and Within the article, Derek talks about the soccer wars of the 2010s, and I've got to agree with him. The amount of leagues that were established, trying to break through, trying to, uh, I mean, compete with MLS, align with MLS, support MLS. We had, obviously, the second creation of the NASL, the defunct league from the 70s, USL, began to make some noise. We had NISA, USL League One. I mean, all these different leagues splintering, uh, diluting the product, and putting themselves under massive financial strain as they try to play cross-continentally. And as uh, Derek mentioned before the break, this is a massive, massive country. And travel accommodation are such barriers for teams to survive 
and thrive. Derek, how can we start coalescing all these leagues so that we are all working in the same way and creating this true pyramid where MLS obviously is, is, is the point of the pyramid, but we do have first, second, third, fourth divisions where there is the possibility through meritocracy of rising up the ranks. Uh, it's it's something that, you know, what you just described is something that would be phenomenal that I'd love to see. It's something that a lot of people would love to see. I think it's something that would be massively beneficial for almost every aspect of the game. But it's something also that's incredibly difficult because you've got these independent, entrenched entities that have control of their little kingdom and they don't want to give it up. And it's, you know, it's the story of soccer, you know, professional soccer, especially in the United States since it's existed you know it's it's conflict it's egos it's you know we got to do it this way no we're in control no we're not doing that we're not participating in this cup so we're gonna start our own league the whole you know it's it's just the story of the game and it's frustrating and it comes down to lack of real leadership from from the u.s soccer federation it comes down to in recent years lack of uh conviction uh from from CONCACAF and from FIFA, um, where, you know we've seen you know the Ottawa Fury were a team in the start of the NASL, uh, playing in the American Pyramid, moved to USL, uh, which you know took a team away from the NASL when they desperately needed one, and then we're told by CONCACAF, well Canada has a league now, you can't play, you have to play in that league or you can't play. Where you know, where, whereas Concacaf won't tell the Montreal Impact and Vancouver Whitecaps and Toronto FC that they can't play in MLS, I mean, that hasn't happened. But the USL team has to shut shut down, and now we have you know an Atletico Madrid uh, outlet playing in, in Ottawa in the Canadian Premier League. So it's it's it all comes down to money, I suppose. At the end of the day, you've got owners uh, in MLS, and to a you know a lesser extent, the further you go down the pyramid, that have paid X Y Z amount of money to be at a certain level, to be in a certain league. And, and they don't want to, you know, lose their investment. And, you know, I, 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 emulating the American franchise sports model, it's about creating value in your investment, right? And if you have a supposedly limited number of spaces, a finite, you know, number of whatever that resources is, in this case, it's a, a team in MLS, a team in USL, and there's only 30, then yours is more viable and you can charge more for the next one to come in and split that money amongst everybody else. So, Getting the uh, the folks who who call those shots and write the checks to agree to anything that would upset that balance of their control is going to be incredibly difficult. And it's you know obviously we've got a couple of lawsuits I think still going on from from the you know the NASL from five six years ago when when they you know went away and lost all their teams. And it's you know I've lived this and it, and it stinks because the end result of all of this is clubs die. Communities lose their teams, right? I lost my job in 2016, 2017. You know, absolutely, 100% loved my club, the Four Lateral Strikers. Was traveled to New York, traveled to San Antonio, traveled halfway across this continent supporting a club, working for way less money than I could have been working anywhere else because I believed in what it was. And then to see, you know, bad ownership come in and allow you know, and then have nowhere for the team to go and have it just disappear and then to rub salt in the wound a few years later, 
Major League Soccer comes back to to the city of Fort Lauderdale out of desperation for the second time and bulldozes the historic stadium that was there and, and is indefinitely camping out, you know, and, and it tells my community it's not good enough to have anything but a a reserve team in their superfluous third division league that, you know, now exists. Um, so it's just this this constant jockeying for position amongst league entities, I think is really what stems, really creates a lot of the problems because you don't necessarily have that the same way in other countries. You do have independent legal entities that operate these divisions, but they're not competing with each other because they don't have to. In 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 England, in France, in Italy, in Germany, you know, almost every country in the world, except for the United States, Mexico, which has just, you know, may or may not bring promotion and relegation back, and Australia and India, where FIFA has kind of pushed them, hey, you need to do this. That's the way the game works, where you have, there's this many number of teams in this division, at the end of the season, you swap them, and nobody loses, you know, there's not an uneven number of teams the next year. Someone's always replaced by someone else, and the club that left doesn't cease to exist. They just play in a different division. So, yeah, it's, it's really frustrating to see, you know, just throughout the whole history of how many teams have failed in this country, how many clubs, how many communities have lost their team because of this kind of league infighting stuff. And kind of the... the Sad thing, at least in the lower divisions, it could have entirely been possible. You know, I watched it happen live in in twenty two thousand or two thousand nine, when the, you know, the Mi- the original Miami FC and I believe it was Charleston and the Vancouver Whitecaps and Montreal when they were in USL. You know, some of the, some of the teams split off and wanted to form the NASL. Well, USL didn't want to do that. There was you know, and then US Soccer had to decide which one are we going to sanction. Twenty ten, they didn't sanction either of them. And they put them together in one league, and the U.S. Soccer Federation ran the second division league. And if they had never given control back, they, they, they kind of gave the inmates keys to the asylum again. Um, you could have saved, you know, a lot of trouble and hassle and, and things like that by just organizing the system and saying, hey, this is all you really need to run a league, in my opinion, is you need money to pay referees, someone to run a website, and post a schedule. I mean, you don't need... Well, why do you need to charge $300 million to join a league? That doesn't make any sense. Like, business-wise, you can invest that into a stadium, into players, into training, you know, fields and infrastructure and academies and all kinds of things where, like, we just feed money to the these billionaire owners of these clubs for the sake of, of doing it. And if the federation either directly or indirectly organized and said, hey, these are the rules – you know, this is how the thing's going to work. You are all welcome to be a part of it if you agree to that. This is how it's work. If not, that's great. You can run your outlaw unsanctioned league if you want and, you know, go take your ball and play. And I think that personally, I'm no legal expert or anything, but where the U.S. Uh, or excuse me, the NASL's, you know, litigation against uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation was kind of backwards. Whereas they're saying, you know, these standards are bad. We need to be able to just compete freely you know, uh, with with MLS and, you know, that's holding us back. It should have been, no, you guys have the authority and FIFA to say, these are the rules if you want to participate in FIFA. There's nothing that says you can't have a league outside of that. Good luck with it. I doubt it will be very successful, but you can still start a professional league if you want that's not affiliated. But if you want to play ball in the world's game with everybody else, this is the rules. It's no different than the rules that say that, you know, 11 players are allowed on the field at the same time. That's part of the rules. If in FIFA's rules, you have to 
principal participation in a certain division is based on competitive results, and they don't enforce that here. And it, and you know, it's called, it's allowed all these different entities to kind of exist and compete with each other and pop up and disappear, and it causes problems. Like after the after the strikers folded, myself and a couple of the supporters and staff who were you know, and and when I say a couple, I literally mean like maybe 10 people that were really, you know, dedicated to it. We actually started our own amateur club in Fort Lauderdale called Himmershi FC. And we joined a local league that had been around in, in Broward County for almost 30 years, I think, at that point. And it was struggling at the time, but it was inexpensive, easy, you know, entry barriers to get into. And we got a team up and running. And before, I want to say twice, before our second season was even over, we had overtures from two other amateur leagues one was trying to start up, one had already existed, to try and poach us out of that league. Which was, you know, cool, and it makes you feel good. Hey, somebody wants us. But then at the same time, if we had left, it takes out one of the teams from from that other league. And if they don't get re- and now they have to go scramble to find somebody else. It's just a constant battle to kind of organize yourself when that sort of thing is happening. So it's just, hopefully at some point, you know, I think honestly the only way that anything like that could happen is if if... FIFA decided, hey, listen, USA, we know you make a lot of money for us and we can host any pretty much event there. And 2026 is going to shatter every possible metric record that there will be for like the World Cup. But get with the program with everybody else. If they're really serious about, you know, the way they stood up to something like that European Super League, you know, which is still bubbling under the surface, then then hold the US to the same standards as everyone else. Right. I mean, I think there's something like, you know, the biggest thing is, is the promotion and relegation, the economics that go along with that. But I don't think soccer, to its credit, I think the way soccer has grown in the last 20, 30 years, if somebody like FC Dallas or Seattle or, you know, the San Jose Earthquakes got sent down to USL, the sponsorship and the TV and all of that stuff, which can be sorted out in an organized pyramid where the revenue is all shared appropriately. From a fan perspective, from a ticket sale perspective, I'm not sure it's that much different because especially here, it's we're, we're, we're not at the place where, you know, for, for the most part, there's not that many people. I'm not even sure there's one person at the moment in, in MLS that could get you know, the casual sports fan off their couch to come to a stadium if that team comes to town. You're not missing out on this global world talent, you know. And in the rest of the world, the game doesn't work that way anyway. You go to see your own team. You're not going to see the guy who's on Manchester United. If you're in Newcastle, you're going to see Newcastle, right? So I think the culture has developed to where the fan base won't evaporate if suddenly your team was a lower level. It would be different. But it wouldn't completely be gone. Wouldn't, wouldn't cause a club to just, oh my God, we've lost everything. We have we have to go out of business. And that's if you didn't really change the economics of how the sport functions at all. I, I don't think. But if in a comprehensive way of you know reorganizing the system, you set it up so that it's not, you know, it's not going to kill a club if they go down. Something like the parachute payments that they have in in England, or you know, just splitting the revenue. I think it would have been great if. That old agreement with Soccer United Marketing and MLS, with the U.S. national teams packaged with MLS as a league for television rights, like, why isn't the entire U.S. soccer pyramid together as one unit? If you could sell 
everything to a TV you know, company or a streaming service, whoever it is, and say, hey, you want to know what market we're in? We're in all of them. Every single place with a team in this country is a part of this deal. Not just the, the 30 major ones that are in at the top level, but all of them. Every country, everybody with a you know, reasonably sized town probably has some sort of team. It would be cool if they were all connected as part of that and got a proportional cut of that sort of revenue. You've got an you opportunity to make soccer a completely unique domestic sports product where everybody has a, has skin in the game. Everybody has a reason to go support their local team, right? And you have something to, for, as an example of the way they kind of don't take that seriously is last year you had the U.S. Open Cup, which is a completely unique tournament, you know, event in this country where amateur teams up to prof- every team that exists that's affiliated with the official system can play against each other in meaningful games is completely like a, a, an, a back burner thing when it should be like the greatest thing that U.S. soccer could be promoting. And now they took it. Last year, every game was on ESPN Plus, which was phenomenal. They, they had gotten better in promoting and streaming these games and getting them out there for people to see. And this year, they're doing eight games per round, you know, on, on like Bleacher Report. It's a YouTube channel. So it's just such a downgrade and it's such an interesting thing. And you could sell that as unique. Uh, you know, it's, it's weird the way, you know, the country goes crazy for like March Madness, uh, college basketball every spring with, you know, the minnow teams, you know, going on a run and it gets everybody all excited. And you've got this thing that's just like that, but bigger and way more interesting because it's it's amateurs playing professional teams and teams like, uh, you know, in the same city that wouldn't normally play each other or playing against each other. It's just super cool. And, and that could be the way the entire system works. And where Des Moines, Iowa and, and Louisville and San Antonio matter as much as New York City and Los Angeles and Chicago because they're all part of the same system. And that's where, you know, it, it's, it goes back to stuff like the travel or, you know, logistics. It doesn't make any sense that it, there are however many teams in Florida and they're in three different divisions that don't play each other. There's a NISA team here. There's two USL teams. There's two MLS teams. And they don't ever play each other except for, you know, usually in the Open Cup because they're in separate, unconnected entities. And instead, they have to go and play a road game in Sacramento or Portland, you know, because they happen to be in the same league. It just, it just, it's, it's, a, it's just the way that it is, is, is as unorganized as, as it could be really. And, and it's just, there's a, there's a vision that's such a better way to do it. And it's, and it's sad that they've had opportunities over the years where there was minimal risk involved with it. For example, the, uh, run up to the 94 world cup where they had FIFA said, Hey, you have to create a first division league. And they had a couple of different ideas. One of which was let's create a multi-tiered system where teams can go up and down. And they didn't do that. They instead decided to create MLS the, you know, the way that it was without incorporating any of the existing teams that, uh, were playing in the country at the time who were putting in that work, doing the dirty work, doing the hard work of keeping it alive when the structure failed them. Right, you had a team like the Tampa Bay Rowdies who never folded when the NASL folded in in the mid '80s. They kept playing, it bouncing, you know, independent things, playing indoor, playing whatever league they could get in uh, for for years after that. And they weren't invited to be part of the original uh, MLS. Instead, they started a, a new team 
in Tampa Bay that didn't have an owner, had a really ridiculous name and branding when you had something that was one of the most popular soccer things in the country, and they went out of business in four or five seasons because the league decided arbitrarily, eh, let's let's cut these two Florida teams off and instead prop up, you know, whoever else, which, you know, that's one of the things that's just, it's kind of the way that it's gone. It's, it's, it's disappointing that it comes down to these boardroom decisions and, and, and kind of business metric things when it could be so much simpler where the focus is on the communities and the clubs and their fans and growing the sport that way instead of making it about we have to create this facade that we're a big deal to try and catch up when you, you just can't do it that way sometimes. And you might get lucky. You know, every once in a while you'll have a good run. The national team will do well. Uh, a club might, you know, get a good result and win the regional thing and end up in the Club World Cup and then lose. Uh, <laughs> so it's 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 just one of those things where it's just frustrating. And, you know, there have there been good things that have happened? Has the game grown and evolved? And is it fantastic that you've got 60,000 people showing up in Atlanta and in Seattle and places like that and you've got you know, these wonderful facilities being built? Yes, absolutely. Those are great things. Is it good that USL is expanding and adding more stable lower division teams? Fantastic. But then you've got things like, you know, the Rochester Rhinos, the only non-MLS team to win the Open Cup uh, since MLS started. Series of ownership changes. We're going to be in the, they were going to be in the NASL. Then they switched before it kicked off and they were back in USL. And then they go on hiatus. Oh, great. They're coming back. But they get poached into this MLS Next Pro Reserve League as the, you know, poster child for the independent teams that they're going to have. And with a you know celebrity EPL co-owner and with after one season they're gone and and two weeks before the open cup and it's a forfeit in you know the oldest soccer competition we have in this country and in, in a year and that's affiliated with the top league in the country you know they're they're great new player developmental league so it's just i guess the end of the day it's just frustrating it's just really disheartening to see nobody really has the the drive to from within the system to change it because you're toppling the system you're rocking the boat and it's all about driving revenues and creating this image of stability and you know kind of prestige about it without really worrying about the foundation and the risk of course with that is that however unlikely it might be is that you don't have a foundation, eventually the house might fall over and you, it's better to kind of make repairs or try and fix that before it happens. And I don't know what that would look like or if that would ever happen, but the fear is that it's the resources all go to the top at the expense of everybody else. And everybody else is the bigger part of the pie than just our first division and our senior men's national team and the national team programs. And that's where that's why you never catch up with it. We'll, we'll never catch up with these the, the major powerhouses in the sport is because we're, we're ironically because we're trying to catch up too quickly and and or not necessarily too quickly, but in the wrong way, just trying to to force yourself into it. It's kind of like, you know, ironically, in most of the world, you can do this, but buying your way into a, a championship. 
you know, somebody like Paris Saint-Germain or, or now Newcastle, you know, this injection of unlimited resources. You throw your resources at doing this thing, but you can't necessarily do that on the national scale with a national team. And you can't do it within a club scenario, particularly in, in the U.S., because not, not that a salary cap is a bad thing, but there's limits on how much an MLS team can or a USL team or whoever it can spend or can put into their team to improve it. And there's and there's logistical and infrastructural things as well that you just a USL team, for example, why or someone like uh, uh, for, forgive me for forgetting his last name, but Rocco, the owner of the the hiatus, still technically New York Cosmos. What incentive is there for him to invest money into a team that can't go anywhere? Can't you know? Can't move up? Can't doesn't have a league to play in? Nobody apparently wanted them after the NASL went away. And so they're gone. They don't play, you know, and and he took his money and invested it in Fiorentina in Italy or uh, Ronaldo, who was the co-owner in at least name of the Fort Lauderdale Strikers, was rebuffed by Don Garber saying, you, you want to get into MLS, you have to pay at the time, whatever, 100, 150 million dollars. And he said, OK. And so he left the team to the the three un equipped owners who were the the real the real guys and the team died and he invested in Valladolid in Spain who is you know in La Liga for for 30 million dollars or something he bought a a professional first division team in Spain as opposed to spending amplitudes more here just to get in the door not to have anything no staff no players no facility he got the whole package for way less abroad and that's you know I think a problem uh, because it it holds it it gatekeeps it keeps potential teams, potential communities, potential owners out before they even get a chance to try and build something. And that's going to eventually, that's, you know, it's a domino effect that negatively affects the top of the pyramid. It negatively affects the national programs and it positively affects other countries because those resources and a lot of times go someplace else. Look at, at uh, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, right? They, they didn't buy an American team in the lower divisions they bought Wrexham in the fifth division of the English pyramid and now have one of the most well-known, you know, marketable cultural phenomenon things in the sport in this country and around the world by buying a small team in Wales. And, you know, the amount of money that American investors go into buying these teams in these open systems in, in Europe, particularly, is kind of funny because, you know, the argument against an uh, uh, open pyramid in the United States is usually, oh, the owners would never go for it. No one would spend this amount of money to to buy a team and then have it not worth anything the next year. Well, it's like, why does that happen all the time then <laughs> in Europe? Granted, you know, some, somebody buys Chelsea, you know, the likelihood of them being relegated is low. It's very low, realistically, but it's possible, right? And And people buy lower division teams with the idea of promoting them overseas when that could easily happen here it could save clubs and communities teams but it doesn't happen because there's just no incentive to do it for most people if there are there guys who are owners out there that it's a passion project and they don't care that they lose money and there's no you know top of the pyramid to get to absolutely and that's you know you look at somebody like you know the charleston battery or the richmond kickers teams that have been around for almost 30 years now and they've stuck through it, but they're just there. They they do great. It's good that they have 
a local club and people have been able to fall in love with that in their communities, but they have nowhere to go. And it's not really fair that because they're, you're in Richmond, you're never going to be a, you know, a, a national major league team. So, you know, you're just there. It's, it's just, it's just a dead end and it's sad because you're not considered a big enough market or, you know, place to, to deserve it. And I think every community deserves the chance in the country. And that's where, I guess if I could boil everything down into one point, it's that we need to, the opportunity should be there for everybody, whether you're a town of 50,000 people or you're New York City. Why can't, you know, a small place have a wonderful club that the whole town supports and draws players, you know, a good, a good team will draw good players. You know, the Green Bay Packers exists in the most popular sports league in this country in a tiny little town in Wisconsin and are still one of the most popular teams in the country. So why can't that happen in soccer? It's just, it's, it's backwards thinking where we exclude too many and we don't open it up the possibility. And that's where at the, you, you have a team in your town that has meaning to it. That's not just a minor league team that where its players are beholden to some other club a thousand miles away. The kids in that town can go to those games and they can be inspired and they can be, I want to play for my team in my town and that kid, maybe it's not the biggest town. Maybe they won't get, you know, to the top division ever, but that kid will play for that club. They'll be developed by that team. They'll move on to a bigger team. They'll be on the national team. But if they didn't have that club, they may never kick a soccer ball in their life. So that's, I think, how the whole thing comes together, where giving that opportunity to every community in the country opens up the possibilities to be endless and to be where we want to be. You want that star on the men's national team jersey. You're going to get that by including everyone because, you know, right now there's no chance for the small communities in this country to ever be a part of the game. The national team's not coming to play there. You know, they're not, there's not going to be a club in some places because just it doesn't make sense because why would I, right? You're going to be in some far flung location in a league that's the teams aren't nearby you and you have no way to advance yourself. And if you tried, if I walked into the door today and said, hey, Major League Soccer, I've got $500 million. I'm going to pay you right now. I'm going to put a team in Des Moines, Iowa. They would go, no. And they would laugh me out the door, even if I had the money to do it. And they said, I've got, you know, I'll sign all these players. I'll get them to come. I'll build the greatest soccer stadium in the country. And it wouldn't happen because it's not the right, we don't like the location, which is insane. So you know, much, it's, it's, it's so crazy. Much to cover, Derek. Derek Reese. I know, I know. <laughs> journalist for World Soccer Talk. Please go to worldsoccertalk.com for more on Derek Reese. Derek, if uh, some of our listeners want to get hold of you, do you have a Twitter where they can reach you? I do. I'm at, on Twitter. I'm at dr928, I think. <laughs> and uh, uh, my website uh, for my uh, graphic design logo badges, if you're out there, if you have an amateur team, league, anything, uh, it's drgraphicart at gmail.com is my email. And drgraphicart.com is my website. Thank you so much, Derek. For more on CalSouth, go to calsouth.com. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget about all our fantastic offerings this summer, the Ojai Camps, the coaching licenses, referee licenses, and of course, Soccer de Mayo on May 6th and 7th. If you want to get hold of me, you can find me at nwebster, at calsouth.com, and of course, on Twitter, at Nick Webster. For Derek Reese, I'm Nick Webster. Thank you so much for joining us on The Bear and the Ball.